Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. And I sort of can't believe what I'm about to tell you, but our guest today is Academy Award-winning screenwriter and director, Quentin Tarantino. Yes, that Quentin Tarantino. If you're still not sure who I'm talking about, he is the man behind Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill, Django, Unchained, Inglorious Bastards, and so many other movies. And today he talks with me about his new book, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is a novelization of his 2019 film of the same title. The Stacks Book Club pick for July is The Best We Could Do by T. Bowie. We'll be discussing the book on the show on Wednesday, July 28th with Mira Jacob. If you're looking for a way to support the work of the Stacks, please join us over on Patreon. You contribute $5 a month and earn perks like our monthly virtual book club, discounts on merch, and more, including being a part of our incredible Stacks Pack community. To join, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks. And here's a thank you to our newest members of the Stacks Pack. Amanda Sanford, Caitlin Bowie, Rachel Block, Katie Rutterer, Leslie Tapscott Mull, Sarah Hess, Charita Lee, Vivian Shields, and Christina Fury. Thank you all for making this show possible. All right, now it's time for my talk with the Quentin Tarantino. All right, everybody, I am here today with Quentin Tarantino. You probably know him as a, I don't know, world famous once in a lifetime type director, but he also just wrote his first novel called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is sort of based on the book, once, based in the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So Quentin, welcome to the Stacks. Good to be here. Thank you. Um, you don't know this, but I'll just start here because it's the only place I can start is that you have the same name as my son. I do. Oh, you named your son Quentin? I did. I did. It's spelled different, but uh, I have twins Uh and and one of them is Quentin. Oh, excellent. Did you uh, name him after uh, the, the Faulkner character? You know what? This is such a weird story. I when we found out we were having twins, I always wanted a daughter named Quincy, and and then when we found out they were boys, I didn't love the name Quincy for a boy. And then my friend was like, "I was in preschool the other day with my kid, and there's this really cute kid named Quentin." And I was like, "That's it. That's the name. I love it." And then I, you know, now I every time I see it anywhere, I'm like, "Oh my god!" Obviously, you had it first, but. Uh, <laughs> still, it's a cool person to be to share a name with. I feel like I'm very happy for any extra Quintons that there are. In the yeah, world. <laughs> there's not that many of you all, so I love. Whenever I, like I that. meet a Quentin, I actually feel like uncommonly close to them. <laughs> I, I'm Tracy with an I, so whenever I meet another Tracy with an I, I'm like, right, exactly. We are we're sisters. <laughs> um, okay, so we'll start sort of where we always start, which is in about 30 seconds or so. Can you just tell us about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? That's an interesting way to pose it. All right. Uh, (laughs) Well, we have like a whole hour to go deep dive. So this is sort of just give the people a sense of what the book is about. Okay, cool. Okay. Well, um, it's a a movie novelization of uh, my last movie, Once Upon a Time in in Hollywood. And I'm a big fan of novelizations. They were actually probably like my first uh, adult books that I read as a young boy in, in, in the seventies. And, um, I kind of like started getting into nostalgic form. I, I dug about a bunch of my old, uh, novelizations and I reread them and they were so much fun. I go, I, I should do one of these. And, uh, everyone seemed to like the last book, uh, the last movie I did. So I thought, well, I should do it on, uh, 
Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So that's that's how it became. That's how it came. I know you're probably asking about the plot, but you know, it, uh, um, but the fact that it's a movie novelization is almost part of the plot. Right. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. But it's a, but it's a, it's about a, a it's about a um a movie star uh, from the Eisenhower era, from a, who had a, a, a western show in the '50s in the early '60s, and now it's like 1969, and uh, the Cultural Revolution has happened, and he all of a sudden, like him and a lot of his brethren, his pompadour brethren of his time, <laughs> are, are, are finding themselves on the on the outside looking in, while you know the hippie sons of former movie stars are the shaggy-haired androgynous types have, have taken over the industry. And it's him and his stunt double who uh, named Cliff Booth, who was his stunt double for like a long time, but it's kind of run afoul of the industry. And now it's just basically his, his gopher. Yeah. And it's just as they traverse these changing waters of the counterculture of 69. Yeah. Um, do you think that folks who've never seen the movie could start with the book? I think you could. I, I'm not imagining there's going to be too many of those people. Right. All right. Uh, <laughs> um, one, I think you could. And two, I'd like to have a conversation with you if you did. All right. But um, <clears throat> to hear where you were coming from. But I was, the movie was pretty successful. So I, and, and so I, I was actually, I'm imagining that 95% of everybody who will read it in the next two years will be coming for having seen the movie. Right. That's what I would imagine too. I've seen the movie and I read the book, but I was thinking about it kind of, you know, cause usually it's like, Oh, you know, read the book and then see the movie. And this is sort of the yeah. opposite of that. And so that's why I was wondering if you kind of imagined it as a standalone or if you think most people I would love it as a standalone. I just yeah. don't think that's a reality. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's totally fair. I'm I'm curious, how did you approach writing this book? And I guess more specifically, a lot of the book is backstory to parts of the movie. Like there's moments, yeah. there's mo like the dog moment where there's this dog named Brandy in the movie. And in the book, we get this whole backstory of how Brandy and Cliff, you know, found one another. And so I'm wondering how you approached that. Were you thinking... When you were making the movie, did you know that backstory, or did you get to just fill in the gaps as you were writing the book a few years later? Well, I did know the backstory, not like not not to the detail that I could write mm -hmm. a chapter on it, <laughs> but I did know it because, like, I, I told Brad it. All right, so Brad Brad knew the situation. There was a whole lot of stuff that I knew about the characters, but it wasn't because I'd written I had written chapters on them. I just knew it. Okay. And uh, I, I used it to inform Brad on his characterization and Leo on his characterization or Al on his characterization. And uh, I, I did that through uh, I, I did that through the movie. And now it was the case of now actually you know putting it on paper and making it work as a book. How I wrote it, I mean, you know, in a weird way, those isolated like cliff chapters, which jump out of the narrative and like hop back to five years or six years or eight years earlier. You know, those were kind of the easiest because, I mean, they were almost like short stories unto themselves. Mm -hmm. And um, and I actually took pride in the fact that they played like little pulp novels unto themselves starring Cliff. Right. Because he almost seems like a pulp character. He seems like a character out of like an Elmer Leonard novel or something. And uh, all of those things could be stories unto themselves. Um, but what was interesting, though, was just the process of writing chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. Um because I've always fancied the way I, I wrote scripts in a novelistic way, mm -hmm. where I didn't like have an outline, and uh, I usually didn't know the end. I didn't know the end of a, 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 of the movie when I started, which is a complete no-no when it comes to <laughs> writing scripts. Not that I was clueless. I mean, if I'm working in genre, so I have an idea where it's going. I mean, right. if I'm writing Kill Bill, I figure she'll probably kill Bill at the end. <laughs> but exactly how she's going to kill Bill, I don't know. Right, right. Um, so with he, with, with you know, and so but I've always kind of fancied myself that I write these half-assed novels when I write my screenplays because there's all kinds of stuff that I know will never make the movie, but it just makes it a better reading experience. At the same time, writing a half-assed novel in screen form is different than writing a proper novel to be published and read by people who read novels. And... Um, you know, it, it it was very interesting. It was it was very interesting the whole idea of uh, uh, starting again and not just trying to take my script and and break it into prose form, but just to rethink it. 
And I had all this material, either the script or just old pages from uh, all the work I had done on it. And then just making, you know, making page one work and then leading into page two and making page three work. And then it catches fire and, and, and goes on. And then, you know, even just the idea that, you know, I have, you know, almost like four main characters. You have uh, Rick and you have Cliff and you have Sharon Tate and you have the Mansons, right. uh, the Manson family. And I'm usually, you know, one, you know, more or less going from one story to the next story to the next story to the next story and then back again. And so just juggling that and getting the right kind of rhythm on, on, on that. And, you know, okay, so what's coming? Okay, now would be a good time for a Cliff backstory. Okay, now would be a good time to tell Charlie's musical aspiration story. Did you struggle with finding the form of writing a novel as someone who's used to writing screenplays? Like, were there things where you and your editor had to sit down and your editor was like, mm, listen, Quentin, we don't do this in books? Or was it, did it come to you sort of naturally? Well, I don't write screenplays the way most people write screenplays. Right. So, you know, uh, uh, so me going against the form is almost part of like, what I do. But I didn't want to do it like like an amateur. Like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Right, right. Uh, um, uh, you know, here's the way I kind of describe it. It, it. Like the biggest difference is just the fact that writing screenplays are, is really easy for me. Hmm. I've been doing it for the last thirty years, right? And uh, I have complete confidence. And you know, and if, it, if it's not on the page, I don't have that co- much confidence. But I usually am very happy with what's on the page, and so it's just very easy for me. I mean, it's just, you know, that's just standard. You know, when you're right, really when you're good at something, it's you know, probably it's because it comes easy to you. Um, writing a novel wasn't hard but it wasn't easy right you know it wasn't it wasn't as easy i had to think about it i was really putting the sentences and putting the page and the flow of the page and the you know the literary aspect under a microscope that you just don't put screenplays under right what is hard for you um oh that's a good question um well, here's the deal about that. I, and I think you would probably, a lot of people who write books will probably end up telling you this. Whenever I was facing a chapter that I was intimidated by, well, exactly what the hell am I going to do here? And it was rising to the occasion to meet the challenge. Usually those chapters became my favorite chapters when I was hmm. done. Hmm, that's super interesting. Did the book change at all from what you set out to write to what we have now in our hands? Well, I hope so. I mean, that's kind of the way I write. I mean, I have a, a, a that's kind of that's part of my methodology is I have I have an idea that mm-hmm. I want to do. I have something that I want to do. But at some point, I want the characters to take it from me. Got it. Wrestle it away from me. And uh, even like when it comes to a script, I can kind of work out what's going to happen. You know, I usually kind of work out what's going to happen from beginning to end, more or less, to some degree. Um, uh, when I start, but the thing about it is, by mid-script, uh, you know, it's completely different because now I know so much more than I ever knew before I started writing, and now I really know the characters, and that's when they usually wrestle, uh, uh, wrestle the project away from me. And I, 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 I do feel, I do feel that happened in the book in a in, in a in a um, in a good way. I mean, one of the things that also I wanted to do is. One, on one hand, I'm telling the story, but again, part of the story is the history of Hollywood at that time. Right. And, you know, and the history of Hollywood that, that Cliff is coming out of. And um, so that became a big part of the book, you know, about like, you know, I mean, kind of similar to if a guy's writing a story about a couple of characters that are in the Civil War, where he's writing the story about Jeb and Abe, all right, in the Civil War at, at Gettysburg or whatever. But then there's a ton of history about the Civil War. Right, of course. How did crammed you... in, in, you know, uh, all the way through it. And I, and I feel that's in there as, far as maybe to a fault, all right, uh, uh, in, in this book. Yeah, there's definitely a ton of history. And, and one of the things that happens throughout the book, and it's in the like the first page is sort of this disclaimer that's like anything that is resembling a person or a place or a thing isn't, that's not that this, it's a historicalization, like this is historical fiction. But I'm wondering how you decided 
what parts to fictionalize and what parts to leave true to history. Because a lot of it is super true to history. You know, the movies you mentioned, the actors you mentioned, um, the events that take place. You know, the Manson family is living on Spawn Ranch in this book. Yeah. So I'm wondering how you kind of decided where to veer off into this fantasy of history and when to stay true to the history of history. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, um, if it doesn't have directly to do usually if it doesn't have directly to do with uh, uh, Rick Dalton himself or um, uh, Trudy Frazier or somebody or like you know two you know, known actors in the piece. Uh, if it doesn't have to do with them, then usually everything is absolutely factual. Mm. It happened. It's real, and uh, I'm making a real reference. Usually, uh, you know, when I'm referencing the movies Rick done, Rick did, since he didn't exist, those are obviously right. uh, uh, phony. But also, I, I have a little bit of a latitude because, like, I'm I'm dealing in a reality where Sharon Tate lived. Right. Of course. So that's not exactly our reality, even as close as it is. Right. So that's why I can kind of jump in the future and tell you what happened to Trudy later in her career because we're we're existing in the reality where Sharon Tay lives. Right. Did you find that giving yourself that permission made it easier or harder to tell this story? Oh, it made it it made it really easy because you know, because I wanted to be as factual as possible except for those breaks. Right. But I wanted those breaks to be so good that like, you know, the the average reader who's not uh a world-known cinephile is like, okay, wait a minute, what's real, what's not real? I mean, yeah, and at a certain point, the Rick stuff starts sounding pretty real. Right, right. That's interesting because I think about, I, I'm someone who loves history and some of the things that I love about your films, like I'm thinking of Inglorious Bastards and Django, it's like you have the history there and then you get like Quentin Tarantino kind of on top of it or like right. interacting with it. And with this book, it was interesting because I was actually able to take the time to look things up as I was reading. Whereas when I'm in yeah. the movie theater, I'm kind of just sitting there watching it being like, You're oh, going that's with the flow. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And like, I didn't know that some of these people were really real in the book until I looked them up just because I was curious. Whereas when I saw it in the movie theater, I wasn't like, is that person a real person? So it added this element of like, oh, he was really accurate to this moment or not, which is sort of fun. It's sort of an added fun part of reading the book versus watching the movie. Yeah. Which yeah, I really well, like, you know, like the, the Aldo Ray chapter. Yeah. Uh, well, Aldo Ray didn't do that Spanish movie <laughs> because it wasn't made. Uh, and there's no Cliff Booth for him to meet. But then everything else about Aldo Ray in there is completely true. I mean, including the whole incident that happened with him and Cliff. It was an actor who told me that story that happened between him and Aldo Ray on a location. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. That's a crazy story. We won't spoil it, but that is a yeah. that was a great scene. Do you think you'd ever do this again with one of your movies? Turn it into a book? Oh, I, no, I might very well. I mean, I'm, 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 you know, this is my first foray into pulpy novel writing. Which right. I'm kind of looking forward to, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, you know, getting into. And I, I, the, I think there's like at least there's at least two other of my screenplays I can imagine doing this too. But I would. You know, uh, 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 I've got another book coming out uh, fairly shortly, and that's a cinema book, right? It's like mm. a nonfiction book with me, uh, um, you know, doing essays and talking about cinema of the 70s. But I think maybe my next novel might be an original. But I mean, but it's going to be a pulp. It's a, 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 you know, it's a pulpy kind of story. Right. When you write, do you think about audience? I ask this question to a lot of the authors that come on the show and it's, you'd be surprised how varying the answer is. So I'm wondering yeah. if you think about audience and if you do who you visualize your audience to be. Well, I think I think more about audience when it comes to movies, because I am thinking of a collective group of people in a movie theater. Right, right, right. All kind of hopefully <laughs> reacting in unison. Right, like the head you know. turn moment in Rosemary's oh, no, Baby. Like, oh, or <laughs> laughter, or uh, sure. you know, I want them to laugh here at this moment, and not just one guy, but like the whole theater, uh, and then like uh, uh, building them up and <sighs> having them release, and mm -hmm. you know, all those, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, when it comes to, um, yeah, it, 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 it's it, it's interesting, and you know, I guess to some degree, I did 
I did let the audience go. You know, I was uh, I was thinking about more of uh, um, the page that making the pages and the, and the chapters and everything something since it is an individual experience. Um, uh, uh, thinking about it, it pleasing myself, mm. and then hoping that that would please uh, anybody who was reading it. I mean, it was actually interesting. There's that whole section in the book where uh, it's a section, it's like a small little couple paragraphs where Rick thinks about how he used, how he reads pulp novel, pulp, pulp uh, western right. yes. in between takes and how he hadn't really thought about it before because it's just something he's been doing forever. That It might be the most solitary thing he's done in his life. Right. And he's like, I don't know how to explain what's going on in this book. Yeah, I don't really, I'm not, not used to doing that. Right. I, I actually <laughs> laughed at that moment because I was like, oh, Rick, if only you knew my life. All I do is talk about <laughs> books out loud to people. But I definitely related to that because when I started this podcast, I had never yeah. really talked about books out loud before that so it was sort of like i was like oh i remember those days just a few years well, I ago i remember <laughs> actually doing that to my grandmother you um uh my grandmother was like you know you know almost i had a few grandmothers even a couple like great grandmothers hmm. and they always read books one of them was like in tennessee and like would read a, a box of books and then trade it to other people in her <laughs> neighborhood and they'd give her a box of books in return um but i remember <laughs> My and I actually know what she was reading. Uh, I, uh, my uh, my grandmother that was we were in East LA was reading uh, uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Oh wow! And so I go. She's at some point in the book. And I go. So what's uh, uh what's the book about? And she then she had to catch me. She had to tell me the story of wow. <laughs> Murder on the Orient Express. And then uh, I go, well, could you read it to me? I mean, you're reading it. She's yeah, sure. Okay, so she just started reading it out loud to me. And then, like, I think like four days later, okay, so how did it all come out? And she did, <laughs> she described the ending to me. <laughs> so did you ever end up reading it yourself? Uh, I never. I, I I've read uh, uh, Ten Little Indians, but I never read. Uh, I never read uh, uh, Murder on the Orient Express. But I remember. Okay, spoiler everybody. I remember she goes. Well, actually, they all did it. <laughs> they all did it. How did that work? Well, it's, it's... <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's such a nice shared experience around books, which is you know my favorite thing in the world. Um, how long did it take you to write this book? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I, I think I wrote the first. I think I, I wrote the first four chapters um, uh, before I started doing the press on the movie. Oh, and so you put, had this idea pre? Yeah, yeah, I had the idea like sometime during the, like the editing of the movie and everything, and during the post production. And I wrote the, wrote the first four chapters, and then I went to do the press. And um, you even hear me cryptically mentioning, it, even though I don't say what I'm doing huh. in, in some of the interviews. Then after everything was said and done, then I, I, I started working on it. And I went through the, the whole thing that happens with first-time novelists is, oh, wow, I think I'm on fire. This is really terrific. <laughs> and then I read back what I've written. I go, oh, my God, this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Um, uh, so then I uh, – and, and that made me put it away for a couple of months because I was so discouraged by what I had done. Um, but then I pulled it out again and then it wasn't quite as bad as I, as I remember it being. And then, uh, you know, then I wrote it again and then, well, that was better. <laughs> that was, it's definitely better, you know? And then I think we went through it another time and then it started being closer to what, you know, what I wanted. Right. I'm wondering about sort of you as this creative human, which you are and, and you, Tarantino sort of means something to a lot of people. And when folks see your films and also in reading this book, there is something that is very Tarantino-esque, if you will, about your work. And I'm wondering if you think about that when you're making something. Are you like, is this, have I gone to the place that only I can go? Is that something that's in your thought process as you're creating? Well, I, I, I don't think I would use the adjective Tarantino-esque, all right, about my own <laughs> stuff. But I do know I have a voice, and I'm, right. and I'm, and I'm reaching to I'm, – I'm trying to capture that voice. I'm trying to, you know, where I guess a language. Mm-hmm. And you, like, you know when you're, when you're flowing with the language, and you know when you're not. Right. You know when it's halting, and you know when it's just flowing, and it's just going. And so I'm always 
I'm, 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 I'm going for that. I mean, I remember it was actually funny though. Um, well, everyone likes saying, um, people, well, I've, I've talked to a few people, not, not even like interviewers, but just like friends of mine who've read the book. And, um, you know, and I make it very clear. No, no, it's not me telling you the story. It's a novelistic narrator. Right. Now, I will admit me and the novelistic narrator sound very, very similar to each other, but we're not the same person. Right, right. But then I had a thing where I was like when I was meeting with different editors uh, over the manuscript, uh, I met with a really good one and I was talking talking to her and I said, uh, um, what did you think about the Lancer chapters? Because there's a um, there's these chapters that happen from time to time, where you it tells the story. The book tells the story of of the Western TV show that that Rick's doing, but it does it as if it's just a chapter of a Western novel. Right. Uh, and it happens in the chapter, and then it goes back to the normal story, and then it, and it happens like one more time. And um, what did you think of the Lancer chapters? And <laughs> the editor goes. Well, arguably, they're the best written chapters in the book because you're not trying to sound like you. <laughs> you're trying to sound like Louis L'Amour. Yeah. <laughs> and you're doing a pretty good job. <laughs> I, I loved those chapters also. And I think it's interesting because those some of those scenes in the movie are also the ones that stick out in my mind like yeah. the, uh, just just so great I loved I loved and I was like what what am I reading you know I read so many books and so fast and I'm like wait what happened what did I miss and then I was like oh my gosh we're in the show I get it now and I I did love those chapters well it was like you know that was a way for me to monkey around with the novel form the way I've monkeyed around with movies right it was like adding your flair to to it yeah to the and uh, uh and I I think when the second Lancer chapter happens, I, the hope is that like you're like I don't want to go back there. I'm in with these guys, but then by the time you get to the end of it, you're caught up in the Lancer story again. That, I had the opposite. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited to be back. But by the end, I was like, okay, where are my friends? Like I was like ready to <laughs> oh, go back right. oh, to the guys. <laughs> There's a good balance of sort of these different worlds. Like it, it, I never felt stuck anywhere. I always was ready for the next moment and excited to see where you were going to take us, which I really appreciated. Because, oh, that's really gratifying to hear. Thank oh, you. Oh, good. I'm glad. Because my fear when I started the book was I was like, is this just going to be the movie? And it's definitely not just the movie. Like, there's yeah. a lot of new stuff and interesting stuff, and it makes the movie make sense. And I finished. I got. I just got the book on Monday, and I finished it today. So now I have to go back and watch the movie again oh. <laughs> because I want to like see Brandy again. <laughs> be right. Like, oh, I know all about <laughs> you. I'm informed. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Of her trajectory. <laughs> that's totally right I'm like I need to know more about I need to see how Brandy performs in her scenes now to see if she's really giving me the backstory <laughs> well you know the thing that I was really trying to experiment with I mean not throughout the whole book obviously but in little sections um and it's something I haven't seen I'm not saying uh, I'm not saying other people haven't done it but I haven't seen it before and, I, and it was a, a real attempt to experiment with it was um in some sequences, taking the kind of writing you see in film criticism and trying to make it work as a narrative. Mm, interesting. And, oh, and then the obvious one of that is like the you know the that second chapter with with Cliff Booth. But even in, but 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 all throughout in some of the uh, uh, the film history stuff, there is a uh, you know there is a writing that you know you know it's 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 closer to to a, a the kind of writing of film criticism, but yet you know, trying to attach it to a narrative. Right. Did you, so speaking of like your voice being very close to the narrator and then that film criticism stuff, is yeah. that, is that where we see you the most, do you feel like, or do you feel like that even that stuff is also, you know, removed from you and is more, well, I guess I'm asking know, uh, if those are your opinions about those movies or we well, shouldn't yeah, take I mean, like it would that. be easy enough for me to, especially since I'm doing it. <laughs> like a film criticism book all right just like right. if it was really just me criticizing uh, making criticism i could just take it out and put it in in the next book i mean uh uh some people have <laughs> said that okay well all this cliff booth stuff that's that's malarkey that's just tarantino talking and tarantino telling us what he thinks about stuff and that's not necessarily correct now i look i will admit that me and Cliff have, when it comes to some of the things he says, we, we actually do agree in a, in, in a lot of areas, mm-hmm. but we agree for different reasons. Huh. The reasons he likes this stuff or the reason he responds are not the reasons I like it and the reasons I respond. 
Um, you know, he's you know he's not coming from a place of cinephilia. He's a man's man that you know uh, you know lived through World War Two. I mean, I would imagine him him thinking cinephilia is something unmanly, sure, or kid stuff, something kids would do. <laughs> Sure. You know, but he's surprised that he finds uh, a worth in, you know, in the 50s we're talking about, that he found, finds a worth in these foreign films right? that Do he's you, seeing. Because he just looks at the Hollywood stuff as just juvenile garbage. Right, 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 right. Of course. Well, that's not where I'm coming from. Right. <laughs> right. Your entry point, but maybe your your final opinion, like yeah, good no, or bad. Yeah, no, our final opinions are, are pretty close, but we got there in two different, different ways journeys yeah yeah as far as quentin is concerned how critical are you a consumer of other people's art oh well I, I'm, I, that's kind of what i do i <laughs> just like no i'm always uh, um uh I'm, I'm a there's a whole lot of people that i'm a aficionado of and, and and fans of whether it be uh uh movie makers or screenwriters or novelists or 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 whatever. In fact, I'm I'm known to go down. It's actually one of my favorite things in the world to do is go down random rabbit holes, mm. and then I'm just like, okay, that's what I'm doing for the next two weeks. Right. Is I'm watching movies by this director or uh, this actor, or 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 I get I get caught up on an author or a series of books or something. And when you're kind of going down those rabbit holes, how much of what you know about the artist outside of the art are you willing to kind of let influence your critiques? Well, I'm coming at it from an expert opinion, okay, is where I'm coming from. So I'm holding it to that standard. And, and like I said, I'm a little bit of an erstwhile film critic, so I'm, I'm, I'm judging it, you know, as I'm watching it. But, but that's okay, all right, because... Uh, you know, the movie needs to work even beyond that and grab me by the throat anyway. Right, right. I just, one of the things I've become deeply obsessed with as a person who talks about art, albeit I only pretty much talk about books, but uh-huh. I, I was a theater major. I've studied art and and talking about art and criticism for so long. And I'm always curious with like how much space should the artist give the critics or the audience and vice versa? Yeah. And I wonder if you have thoughts on that. Well, I, you know, uh, an artist can actually completely disagree where uh, uh, an audience member or a critic is coming from. But once you let it go, it's theirs. Right. It's theirs to think, you know, you can think, you know, especially if it's a critic who, who who's stating their case, making their argument, you can pick apart their argument, well, they obviously don't understand, or they got that wrong, or that and the other, but, uh, uh, but you know, once you get, but nevertheless, at the end of the day, they're still the audience, and once you give it to the audience, that's it, and I'm a, a gigantic proponent of that, I mean, to such a degree that, you know, there's all kinds of things in my movies that I don't explain, and I don't tell you if I wanted you to know something, I'd tell it to you. Mm-hmm. And I actually do think part of the, the the author's job, whether you're writing a movie or, write, or writing anything, is like uh, the way you, you, you parse out your information. If I'm telling you something, well, it's important that I'm telling it to you. And I'm giving you information. It's important I'm giving you information. But I don't have to give you information. If I don't, then that's important too. And then, uh, but the reason I'm not giving it to you is just to, is not to just be opaque, but to for you to make a decision yourself. Right. And and then, do you think that at at that point, whatever you put out, then it's up to the audience? Yeah, it's like if if you know when it comes to you know I know the, the briefcase in Pulp Fiction, whatever you come up with, what's in that briefcase, you're right. Right. For you, you're right. And I would never say what I think because I don't want to invalidate what you thought. Whatever you come up with, whatever decision you make in any of these directions, you're right. Do you think that it's fair for audiences to connect the artist to the art? Well, um, I guess it's just, uh, uh, yes, I I guess so. I mean, uh, they they can be led astray by by doing that but you know it's pretty hard for me to watch a peck and paw movie and not think about peck and paw through it right 
right. and not think about his, you know, trials and tribulations as his characters go through similar trials and tribulations. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I ask because I always struggle with like, is art a commentary on the artist, right? Like is, mm-hmm. is the product a commentary on the producer and why someone chooses to make art about one thing or another, you know, like why you chose to make a movie about Nazi Germany versus making a movie yeah. about, I don't know, you know, Gettysburg, right? Like, yeah, why? Yeah. and yeah. so I, and so I wonder sort of how, as how you vi- see the audience interpreting things like how how you see their role in understanding the art artist or if they should not if they should just say look this is the thing and that's the only thing yeah no i don't agree that you know this is just a thing and you deal with it and it's a blank slate every single time at least not with the artists that i like i mean right you know the, the what makes me you know what usually makes me respond rather than one standalone movie or one standalone book what makes me respond to them is a body of work interesting and inside of the body of work, there's a character, there's a personality, there's a philosophy, there's a patina, there's you know a zillion different other adjectives that that you you know you carry from one piece to the other, and they're not just standalone pieces. There can be strange outliers inside of there, and you know, but even how much of an outlier are they? Almost the fact that they stand opposite to the other ones almost seems to be the point. Right. Right. Yeah. That's that's a good point. I, it's a, I, it's something that I'm obsessed with, and I don't know if I'll ever fully come to a realization about what I think about all of these things. Because then you know you start to think about people who are labeled as problematic or this and that, and then the question becomes: Is their art still worthy of time and attention, or should we be turning our time and attention elsewhere? And you know that's sort of the the ultimate kind of thinking about these well, things. Well, it's a weird thing for me because I mean, you're using the word problematic. I've always considered problematic like a good adjective. Really? All right, especially when it comes <laughs> to characters. Sure, characters, but what about the artists themselves? If the artist, if we know that the artist is doing things that are criminal or mm-hmm. cl- criminally adjacent, how do we understand the art through that context and is it were is the art then worthy to consume right like let's pull something out of the headlines from this week is like bill yeah. cosby you know like watching the cosby show now means something totally different than it did well you look you're right okay here okay so that's a that's a good example okay so maybe maybe the cosby show is affected <laughs> Right. Because he was presenting this false version of himself and the whole family concept and everything. And this is me just making an arbitrary thing. All right. So maybe that is effective. But like, you know, at the end of the day, those those movies he did with Sidney Poitier aren't that affected by it. See, not I, that I've watched them since right. he's been to jail, but I think I could still watch uh, Uptown Saturday Night and still enjoy it. You think so? I see. I think I. I mean, I know that I just get like that cringy feeling where I'm like, I can't be here. Like, there's an. I could watch another movie right now that I've never seen before that doesn't have someone who. You know, you know? I guess you know. Here's the thing about that. I mean, look, I haven't done that yet, so I can't say for right. sure. Sure, this is but, all hypothetical. Um, but I would like to think I could because Sidney Poitier doesn't deserve that. All the other people don't deserve that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. No, 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 but it's interesting. There, I, there's not a, there's not a, a, a yes or no answer, you know. Uh, I, I, I guess to that. But then, uh, um, look, you know, uh, uh, it's interesting because Bill Cosby kind of becomes a lightning rod. He's in the yeah. thing right now. But I mean, but, so maybe not Bill Cosby per se, but you know, but there's, you know, there's other artists. Well, maybe they run afoul of. Of, of the times right now, but that might not be the case 20 years from now. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, these things change. The, the, the way that the culture, in air quotes, kind of engages with people changes yeah. over time, right? Of course, we all know that because there were, if going with the Cosby example, there were murmurs about him for years and years before there was any, you know, legal yeah. action. And the culture allowed for that, right? And so, of course, there's a changing of the culture. But there's so many people that I think about. Like, I mean, for example, my favorite movie or one of my favorite movies is Gone with the Wind. And yeah, yeah. as a black woman, that's a pretty controversial take in 2021, I feel like. People get yeah, on yeah. me a lot about it. But it is my favorite movie. And I yeah. think about it a lot. And I think about why I like it and why I don't like it. And, you know, there's – and Margaret Mitchell and, and the movie itself and the portrayals of people and all of that. but at a certain point, 
I have to make a decision as the audience, as the critic, as the viewer of what I'm willing and able to take in from a piece of art. And a lot of the outside stuff plays into it for me. And I'm, well, I guess okay. I'm, yeah. But, okay, but I think also there is another aspect to it to look at. And I see you, you articulated that really well. Um, uh, but I think another aspect is like, okay, well, I, I brought up Peckinpah recently. Well, he seems to be a pretty fucked up dude. Sure. All right. And, um, but he threw all of that into his work. Now, do I want to be married to him? No. Do I want my daughter to marry him? No. But ultimately, I don't care. Right. I, I care about what he did. So, the, I mean, I guess it just becomes that every piece of art is sort of up to the viewer of what they're willing to handle, how much they want to yeah, take in. But I mean, but in the case of Peckinpah, I think all those demons are what made his art. Sure. I mean, that's a, that's that whole other idea of like the, the, the mentally troubled artist, you know, like I think that's like yeah. this fantasy that we have that to be a good artist or to create. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, uh, I don't buy that as a, as an axiom, but sure. in some cases, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think in some cases it's definitely true. It's just one of those things where I'm always like, yeah, we we're as a culture, we're obsessed with the troubled I mean, artist. Like, you know, do you, you know, do you really care that, that Charlie Parker threw his life away? All right. With heroin, or do you care that the heroin made, made the greatest jazz records ever made? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, it's all, I mean, that's sort of the question, like the artist and the art and the art and it was the artist. Choice. And sure. he was better on heroin. It's just, it's a, it's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know if his loved ones would say that, but. <laughs> yeah, well, his loved ones aren't talking about the records. <laughs> all I have to deal with are the records. Right. I mean, I guess that that's kind of getting at the whole question of yeah. like, you know, how do we, how do we navigate the, com- right. the complexity of human and then the complexity of art because they become so inextricably linked. And I think with movies, like you brought up, there yeah. are a lot of people who are involved. And so it's easier. But when you take like an album or something or, or a musician, you know, it's it's a little bit different because it's sort of like just them, you know, even yeah. though there's other people around, it's sort of like that's their thing. Like that's their vision. Yeah. But yeah, if a guy's actually going into a room with a guitar or, or a piano, well, then no, that's him. Right. Making exactly. it stop. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm totally switching topics, like going complete 180, because this is some of the stuff that I always ask on this show, which is how do you write? Where are you? Um, are you eating snacks, drinking beverages? Do you light a candle? Do you have a ritual? What is the writing setup for you in in the writing of your novel? Um, I don't eat snacks or anything, but I'll like you know I'll uh, um, I'll start off in the day, maybe have a couple of cups of coffee and some water, and maybe I'll you know, might make a drink at some point. So you write all day. Uh, for the most part, you know. Um, I mean, it was actually really interesting because. Um, this year, I'm uh, uh, I, I moved uh, you know for the most of the year to uh, uh, Tel Aviv to, uh, with my wife, uh, who's Israeli, and uh, we had a child. Congratulations! Thank you. He's like uh, 18 months. Oh wait, when in December? <laughs> yeah, uh, no, no, no. He's uh, uh, um, uh, when was, uh, February, February. Oh, my my kids were born in December of 2019, oh, okay, cool. okay. so they're close <laughs> in age. Oh, so. <laughs> Are, are they talking yet? A little bit. They got mama, dada. Uh oh, is really big right now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. My son. My son says uh, uh, Abba, which is the Hebrew for daddy, and and he can kind of say mama a little yeah. bit. He uses Abba for everything. <laughs> my kids use mama Only for a third everything. Of the time he means me. Yeah. Yeah. It's like mine is mama. Like yeah. get out of my way is mama. Give me that is mama. It's yeah, like, yeah, I don't, exactly. I'm like, I don't know. Stop saying my name. Get away from me. Yeah. But he, but he, he, a, he really gets himself. A, he, he, he's understood. He really, we really understand him. When yeah. he's trying to I feel like their kids are very good at getting their point across. Actually, yeah. I'm going to let you go back to what you were saying, but I have to tell you this. So when I was pregnant, I saw once upon a time in Hollywood in the theater and uh-huh. um, I was probably like, I don't know, six months pregnant and uh-huh twins and one of them is real was really annoying in the womb and one of them was very chill and we were just like coming up with nicknames for them and as we're watching the movie the scene during the lancer filming when he's talking about the book and he says Uh that the guy is easy breezy we started calling the twins easy and breezy in the womb for the rest (laughs) of the pregnancy and i had completely forgot about that once they were born you know we call them by their names um but when i was reading the book last night and i got to that section i was like oh my god and i like ran to my husband i was like remember easy and breezy remember we got it from the movie i thought that was great ad for the easy breezy book in the back yeah i did see it i loved it i loved it <laughs> um but anyways you were saying so your son was born during the writing and you moved to tel aviv yeah and my son was born this year and so uh you know and this was you know the COVID, all the covid thing hit but like this was a year that i was planning on being at home most of the time anyway because i was going to write a book and i wanted to be home uh with my little boy and my wife and our first uh you know his first year um you know, so it was a, a a situation where I got up and had breakfast with them, and then at some point after breakfast, I retired to my office and and then just started writing. And then it's you know, and then just you know, during the day, I would take breaks and come outside and hang out with them, and and uh, you know, usually tried to finish up at like around six or so, so I was like ready to you know uh, uh, give him his bath with my wife. Yeah, I love bath time. My favorite time of day. Yeah, it's that really, means it it's was, almost well, bedtime. I mean, it, was, it was a dream. It was just a dream to just uh, you know not have any worries and just be you know be in my office writing my book and hearing my son in the other room and hearing my wife in the other room and like hey come in the room Leo's pointing at something and he means it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the important part, and he actually means it because in the beginning you're like oh he's pointing and you're like no he has no clue what's going yeah, on. Yeah, he doesn't have go. Oh no, though this. There's intention here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I love that. They're so close in age. Um, okay. This is also very, this is one of the most important questions you'll probably be asked on your entire press tour, which is what is a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Oh, okay. That's a bad question for me because I just have too many. I have too many answers oh, me for that. Me too. Welcome uh, to the club. <laughs> um, restaurant. You know, it's just so not phonetic and I'm just so 
spell phonetically, and it's just so not phonetic. Yeah. Okay, I have to ask you a question that I know you get all the time, but I can't not ask because I, I've heard too many different answers from you, so I'm going to try to nail you down here. Okay. Are you really retiring after your next movie? Because I heard you on Mark Marin this week, and you said that that was not real, but I've also heard you say that that is real, and so many well, people need Maron to know. Thing, no, Mark Marin was because there was a whole thing going on that like you've made your last movie. Oh, so you have and one I was more? Like, no, no, that was taken out of context from a thing. All right, so no, it's not that I'm not going to retire the tenth one. It was that I was I, I was going to I just decided that I'm that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is my last movie. That was the thing I that was see. floating around. So that's what he was referring to. Okay, so th- there's one more. We got one more, and yeah, then it's I, over. I, yeah, I haven't retired yet. There, there's another one out there somewhere. And yeah. that, but then you're going to retire from making movies, but you're just going to write a bunch of books. Then I feel yeah, like that's, that's the, the vibe idea. I'm getting. Books or plays or yeah, things like that. So you're you're not done. You're just like no, over I'm not this. done. I'm just done. You know, uh, yeah, going out and making movies. Okay, but are you the kind of person that when you say something publicly, then you have to stick by it even if you don't want to? Like, what if ten, in 10 years you're like, holy shit, I have an 11th movie. Will you do it? Well, or do you think that you'll be like, I, I'm too proud because I'm like that. I would never do it. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. Uh, uh, I know people would snicker if I did that. But if it really was the story that I absolutely positively had to tell, you, you know, 15 years from now or 20 years from now, you know, then it probably, you know, it probably wouldn't stop me. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's not where I'm coming from. But even if I did do that, it would probably be in the fan's mind, it would be exercise from those first 10. Right. It would be like a separate. It, it would be the, the film that falls in the old folks home category. Right. <laughs> Well, you know, Jay Z's retired like a bunch of times, so I'm yeah, okay, but I don't want to be like that. All right, <laughs> I'm not Sinatra who like you know retired every five years just on account of because. <laughs> you know, if you want to truly be a great, you have to retire and then unretire, like Michael Jordan did that. A lot of people fake retire who are really because it's like you still have something in you and you need to give it to them. I just want I just want to open a door for you in case you decide yeah, you want to do well, something. No, else. I, I appreciate no, you're, you're, I, I I appreciate your open door. <laughs> I do appreciate it. I'm not being facetious. I do appreciate it. But ultimately, I'm a storyteller, so I don't need to cast a whole big movie and shoot a whole big movie and do costumes for a whole big movie. I could just write a story. You could, but you might have to. I don't know. Well, see, well, I, I, I take your point. You're, I'm just, I, you know, the people like to talk in absolutes. I'm just giving you some gray space, some wiggle room here. <laughs> I'm actually just giving myself hope is what it is. <laughs> well, like, so I, I appreciate it. But I mean, I do like the idea. I mean, it's like, you know, they're like, but, you know, you're in a good place. Well, that's a great place to stop. You know, I would, yeah. you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't. I don't want to lose my championship to Leon Spanks. <laughs> right, right. I get that. I, I a thousand percent get wanting to go out on top. And I feel like for a lot of people whose work that I love, I wish that they had thrown in the towel a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, so I get that. I mean, especially for a lot of directors, it's like it's two or three movies more. If they had stopped before they did the last two or the last three, oh my God, what a what a career. Okay, but what if your next movie is not a hit and you don't like it what it will you go out on a flop would you could you well okay uh uh well it doesn't have to be a hit all right but it has to be good all right um no that would fuck everything up. <laughs> it would oh my god i'm gonna tell no, all would, the critics no, I, would, I know no, to I would pan need you to redeem myself <laughs> after that uh, uh i find i i find it hard to believe if i was ha- that happy with the script enough to make it as my last film it would say fa- that would be that much of a failure in my eyes at least sure no sure i i just you know i'm just thinking of scenarios no, I, no, you're, 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 you're you're countering me very cleverly. I'm trying hard. Um, Okay, we're going to wrap up. I just have a few more questions. And this one is, um, you you seem to like books a lot, so I'm excited to hear what you say. For people who love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the novel, what are some other books that you might recommend to them? Oh, that's cool. Um, Okay. Well, the harder part is trying to tie it to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It doesn't have to be completely tied. I let I keep that yeah. question super open. I tell people like what what's it in conversation with? So there's a yeah, lot of yeah, no, no, I, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I get what, no, I get what you mean. Um, 
I wasn't trying to write like Elmer Leonard, but people have been saying some of the reviews that I've been, you know, uh, uh, I've been saying you know, that the book reminds them uh, of him to some degree. And I guess that is kind of true. I guess especially the Cliff character right. very much seems like an Elmer Leonard or Charles Williford type of character. So, I, okay, so uh, uh, okay, using that as an example, um, you know, I think uh, the Elmer Leonard book, uh, uh, City Primeval, High Noon in Detroit, uh, is 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 a good one uh, to also check out the entire Hope Mosley series that Charles Wilford uh, Williford wrote, which is uh, Miami Blues, um, uh, New Hope for the Dead, and Sideswipe. They're they're terrific. One of my favorite uh, 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 novel series. I'm also a big big fan. Not that this is so much like my book, but I kind of aspire to the to the sense of fun that this book has is uh, Dan Jenkins' novel for Semi-Tough. Hmm, I don't know that one. Oh, I think it's just one of the funniest books ever written. Okay, I'll check it out. I'll check it out. I heard you on Mark Maron, and obviously I said this, um, talk about uh, the Manson, all the Manson books you've read. Yeah, and uh-huh. I, I need to know, I guess I, I fancy myself as a person who's read a lot of Manson books and, like, and uh-huh. likes them <laughs> and then like a little obsessed with Manson. Oh, how did you... How did you like the Manson? How did you like the the the, the you know the whole Manson chapter that where it deals with him dealing you know uh, about his whole musical aspiration? Well, so I had read the Manson book that you reference um, by Jeff Gwynn. Oh yeah, um, and so I I mean I'm pretty familiar with that like with that history the Mel- yeah. the Terry Melcher stuff. Um, so I wasn't surprised yeah, by any of like it. I'm not telling you anything that hasn't already been written in other novels. I'm just writing it in my words. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I, any, any chapter that has anything to do with Manson, I'm like super into, I have a weird, like love of, you know, cult leader kind of vibe. So I like that stuff a lot, but I want to know why I didn't know Helter Skelter was not real. Oh, it's, it's, no, it's, 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 well, it's, it's a well-written book. He's yeah, a really I mean, good writer. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, Bugliosi wrote a terrific book as as a writer, but as a as a public defender, he 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 came up with a whole bunch of malarkey just to because right. he kind of didn't have a case. Right. No, as a prosecutor. As a prosecutor, yeah. yeah. He, he yeah, as a prosecutor, I see. He, he didn't really have a genuine case against Manson, right. and so I he see. came up with the most outlandish theory possible, and. And pushed it, and then they acted so outlandish that they just fed into his narrative. Right, I see. Okay. I thought you were uh, saying it was totally, like, false, and I was like, wait, that is the way that I got into the Manson, so I... Well, that's the way way most people, you know, got into Manson. But the whole concept that he sent them up to Cielo Drive to start a race war, I mean, that's just a bunch of bullshit. Right, right, right. Interesting. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I I love Helter Skelter. I think it's like it's an incredible read. Bugliosi is an incredible storyteller. It's absolutely an incredible. Yeah, uh, it's absolutely an incredible read. Yeah. But if you're a if you're a big if you're a an Manson novel aficionado, you've got to read the Tom O'Neill book Chaos. I haven't read that. That's the one that came out that's like the a one. year that's year or two ago. Okay, I have to read that yeah, one. That's I've the read one. The Jeff all Glenn. the other Manson books have led to that book. Okay, I need to read it. it I, I, it's on, been on my list for a long time yeah. because I read the Manson, the Jeff Gwynn, and then I read the Jim Jones, Jeff Gwynn also because oh. uh, that's another well, that Manson, story. That Manson book was great because it, it, you know, I, I, I learned a lot because it, you know, it treated him as, as a biography rather yeah. than. Uh, and it spent a lot of time in his childhood and like in yeah. in his incarcerated days and all that, which I, I mean, thought there's was super some things in it that I, I like. Oh, well, why are you the only person to ever mention that Manson went to the, you know, went to the crime scene on that night? Right. Where did, right. Where did this come from? Right. I see. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. I was like, I have to ask him about this because when you, I was in the grocery store and when I heard that, I was like, what does he mean? This is fiction. But I hear yeah. what you're saying. It's like the prosecutorial yeah, but you know, but the book is based, you know, but his his book is backing up right. his prosecutor's prosecutor uh, prosecutorial case. Right, case, exactly. Uh, case. It's his case. Yeah. In written form. I see. Okay. Okay, here are my last two questions for you. One is one what do you hope that folks will keep in mind when they're reading Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I'm trying to think what it means actually. Um yeah, you know, I, I I I don't know if this is a good answer for that question, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I hope they find it humorous and they have a good time. That's a great answer. Does that make sense? Yeah, a thousand percent. 
you know, I, I just I, I hope they have a fun time reading it, and I hope you know, and I, I think it's kind of witty. I think it's funny. I think you can laugh, and um, uh, you know, I just hope they have. I, I hope you know, I hope they ha- I hope they have a real good time, you know, reading it. Yeah, I love that. Okay, here's the last one. If you could have one person, dead or alive, read your book, who would you want it to be? Pauline Kale. That was easy for you. <laughs> yeah, well. She's kind of like my mentor, you know. I, and I think she kind of might have. I think she might have got a kick out of the movie, and I think she might have got a kick out of the book. Actually, Pauline Kael made it a point from time to time to read novelizations of the movie she was reviewing. Interesting. She didn't go off and hold court about it, but she would make a, you know, but you know, if, uh, but from time to time in review, she would just make a random reference to the novelization. Hmm. I like that. That's very Yeah, you know, and she was just reading it to have a fuller understanding of the book. She would, you know, she's like one of the few critics who would like, okay, she'd read, you know, she'd see a movie and then she'd go and read the book that it was based on just to make a, you know, uh, uh, you know, to have a fuller understanding of the story and to, you know, make observations. Yeah. I love but, that. Yeah, no, some people would, uh, that, that's understandable that people would do that, but for her to like read the novel, read the novelization, oh, that's going a little extra, that's the extra, extra mile. Going a little extra bit. Yeah. I remember... Her, her review of uh, Buckaroo Banzai <laughs> across the eighth dimension. She goes, <laughs> it was something to the effect of, yeah, I read the novelization. <laughs> it's like written by an illiterate Thomas Pynchon. <laughs> <laughs> Super kind, very gracious review. <laughs> actually, but that actually suggests it's going to be kind of fun, frankly. <laughs> sure, that's true. That's true. Oh my goodness. Well, I will let you go. This has been so amazing, Quentin. Thank you so much for your time and for coming oh, on this my pleasure. book hey, let me ask you, let me yeah. ask let me ask you a question. And I you know, I, I, I I've always done this. Like if you were talking about one of my movies, I'd ask you what what is your favorite scene. Did you have a favorite chapter? In the book? Yeah. I okay, I really liked the stuff with Mirabella Trudy. Oh and uh-huh. I but I the here I was thinking about this honestly. Because I've uh-huh. seen the movie I yeah. was envisioning the actors and I just yeah. loved that little girl so much. Mm-hmm. So I was in, I was remembering how much I enjoyed that. So that yeah. scene sticks out to me. And then I also really, um, I really liked the stuff with, um, with them on Spawn Ranch. I liked, oh, really? oh. I liked the squeaky stuff. I liked that interaction between her and Cliff. Like when he goes to see um, George, George, George. Yeah. When he goes to yeah. see George and like how she, you know, is eavesdropping. And I like how we can't hear what they're saying, but we get to hear what she hears. Like, can't make this part yeah. out indistinguishable, but she heard this or she heard that. So I liked, I liked those scenes. Oh, that was, yeah, well, well, that was interesting because it was like, oh gosh, this is one of the best scenes in the movie. I mean, am I going to really try to compete with that? <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I'm going to compete with the production design of, of Spawn Ranch on a book. But then when I thought, well, if I just do it from Squeaky's perspective, I can do the exact same scene, but that that makes it genuinely different. It, right. you know, you're not from Squeaky's perspective in the book, right. in the movie. And right. to do it from her perspective, when you only see what she sees, oh, I thought that was like a legitimate way to tell this tell the scene. Yeah, I like that. And I, I also I said before, I love the Lancer scenes. Yeah, yeah, you did. That was cool. <laughs> those were awesome. I love those scenes. Um, and and it kind of functioned in the same way that the scene does in the movie, where you're watching Leonardo DiCaprio, and all of a sudden he calls for a line, and then you're like, "Oh my gosh, we're in yeah, the yeah, film." That was the that was the intention, and the thing is like just like the intention in the movie was like, "What the fuck are we watching this western scene right. that doesn't so mean good. anything?" So long, and then so long, and then just as you get caught up into it, he calls line. Yeah, that part, that <laughs> moment is so great. I ha- so another story about when we saw this in the theater is that my husband, who never has to pee, who's a huge fan of yours and has seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so many times that now I'm like, are we watching this again? He, <laughs> when we saw it in the theater, he went pee during that scene, and I'm so pregnant, I could not get up. I was like, I'm not, I'm not going pee during this movie. And he comes back, and I just lean over and I go, I think you missed the best scene in the whole movie because he missed the line. I mean, he's now seen it a hundred times, so it's right, fine. Yeah. But like in that moment, I leaned over and I was like, you definitely it's missed like, the best. Scene. What's going on with you? I have, I have our twins doing a, yes. using my bladder for a speed bag, and exactly. I didn't miss it. And I was like, you just missed this like. Uh, it, that scene is so I mean I still think about it like just randomly I'll be like wow that was awesome um, oh, 
so much. Yeah. Well, thank you. You know, I'm still leaving the door open for you to not be done making movies, but also you, leaving I, the door I, I, open I, for whatever you, you do next. in a very charming way, I might say. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Quentin, and everyone else. Go ahead and get your copy of Once, a Time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino. It's a novel. If you've seen the movie, it's different. I promise. I, it's 400 <laughs> pages, and I read all 400 pages, so that's how you know it's different, because if it was the same, there's no way I would have done it. Um, <laughs> and every and thank you, and everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Okay, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. This is a really fun interview. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening, and thank you to Quentin Tarantino for being my guest. I'd also like to thank Rachel Alinsky and Natalie from Row PR for making this interview possible. Our July book club pick is The Best We Could Do by T. Bowie, which we will discuss on July 28th with Mira Jacob. If you like what you hear, consider supporting The Stacks by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash The Stacks. And please make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter, and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 